For the past eight months, we have been working our way, traveling through John's gospel, learning about the life and ministry of Jesus. It has been, for me personally, um, one of the highlights, literally, of my Christian life in studying this gospel and reading the commentaries that I've been reading, but the time just in the passages and connecting all that that John is trying to teach us. And, and literally, th- these are God's words to us. God is the one speaking. God is the one who is relating these stories to us about the Savior. This is the incarnate word speaking to us. And so it has been, it has been just a, a wonderful journey for me. And I trust it's been an enjoyable journey for you as well. What I want to do this morning is we're, we're in chapter 7. Chapter 7 is really one entire story, but it is 52 verses long, and I don't want to rush through it. So I'm actually going to do something a little different this morning. I'm going to do, it's one message, but two weeks. So actually you're going to get part one today and you'll get part two next week. And, and before we dive into chapter seven, what I'd really like to do is recap the first six chapters to give you an idea and, re, and just a reminder of where we've been and where our savior has been and why Chapter 7 is about the things that John relates to us. It helps us to provide, to have this background. And uh, is, there, is there a map that, did I, did I ask for a map of the Sea of Galilee? Okay, you, you can see the Sea of Galilee and Tiberias there and Bethsaida and Capernaum and uh, Gergesa. Those are the areas that in, when Jesus is in Galilee, he is traveling around. When we're reading in, in John chapter um, 6 and they're, they're feeding the 5,000, they've crossed the Sea of Galilee and then they cross again. That's, that's where this is, you can see. And Jesus has spent most of his ministry time in Galilee. He makes trips back and forth to Jerusalem at festivals, Passover, and we'll see in chapter 7 the Feast of Booths, but, but he spends most of his ministry time in Galilee. So you can, you can turn that off. John gives us, at the end of his gospel, the reason why he wrote this gospel. John twenty thirty one. But these are written, these things, these stories that we are studying, these truths that we are being confronted by, being challenged by, hopefully being convicted by, these stories, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing... You may have life in his name. The, the word life appears many times in John's gospel. It is one of the major themes of John's gospel. And John writes this gospel for the sole 
purpose, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. And all that we have studied up to this point, all that we continue to study, is to that purpose, that you might believe, and that your faith in Him might grow, your understanding of who He is might increase and expand. And that those who read this gospel, John wrote this gospel to an audience that were not believing, that they would believe. And all that we've studied is for that purpose. And John attempts to accomplish this great task of helping us believe that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, the Christ. He writes this by showing us verse after verse, chapter after chapter. He shows us who Jesus is and all that Jesus has done. And the first 12 chapters of this book, starting from 119 to 1250, are known as the book of signs. Signs and wonders that Jesus did that we might be captured by his presence and his power And his purpose for coming. That's what these 12 chapters are. So pray with me as we begin. Father, speak to us through your word this morning, we ask. Lord, we are ready listeners. We are... We are here this morning to listen to our God... Speak to us through the inspired word that you've given us. Lord, we are ready listeners. Help us to hear. Help our hearts to receive. Help our minds to understand, Lord. And may we, as we listen, be encouraged and may we be refreshed and may we be convicted where appropriate May we encounter the living God. Lord, I just ask for your help in the very weaknesses I have in representing you and standing here this morning speaking your words as a fallible human being. Lord, please use me to teach the infallible word of God for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, up to this point, we've learned from John in chapter 1, John the Baptist is in Bethany across the Jordan. When Jesus arrives, John does not recount the birth of Christ as do the synoptics. John kind of starts really with, with John the Baptist in Bethany. Jesus arrives, John baptized him. The next day, Jesus goes off to Galilee where he begins assembling his disciples. And while in Galilee, he attends a wedding. And this is where Jesus' ministry begins, where he becomes the, the people who, the, where the person who the people are beginning to talk about, where he performs his first sign by turning water into wine, a sign that reveals the old ways of purification are gone and the new way has come, and that is being purified in Christ being cleansed in Christ, a new and permanent purification. But Jesus understands this 
His disciples don't quite get it, and neither do the crowds. In chapter 2, Jesus heads from Jerusalem to the first of the three Passovers that he will attend in that city. Immediately upon entering Jerusalem, Jesus creates controversy by cleansing the temple, by overturning the tables of the, the money changers, and by driving out all of the animals that are there. He is cleansing this temple and again declaring that the old has gone. The old temple, the physical temple, is no longer, no longer the place where you will encounter God. The new temple, the promised one, is again the permanent one found in Christ, found in Him. In chapters 3 and 4, after his encounter with Nicodemus, Jesus with his disciples heads off into the Judean countryside. The reason for that is after cleansing the temple, he stirred controversy. And it's the first time where Jesus began having these interactions with the Jewish leaders, the authorities, the Pharisees. And they are not happy with him for what he did in, in the temple. And so he heads off into the Judean countryside. His disciples are baptizing and another controversy arises because there are people who are loyal to John and the Pharisees are the one creating the controversy saying, oh, Jesus' disciples are baptizing more than John's. And, And so Jesus heads out into a more remote area. And he arrives back in Canaan where Cana, where he performs his second sign, the healing of a nobleman's son. And then chapter 5, again, Jesus returns to Jerusalem for another festival. We're not told in John what festival that is, but opposition escalates there because in John 5, Jesus performs his third sign. He heals a lame man on the Sabbath. And he talks about doing the works of God and that he's doing the works of his Father because he is equal with God and the Jewish authorities go ballistic. So ballistic that they seek to kill him. It has escalated from chapter 2 to chapter 5, this growing hatred, this growing desire to silence the Savior. And Jesus again leaves the area because he is making statements so bold And so unheard of, the Jews cannot tolerate having him around. And then chapter 6, Jesus leaves for Jerusalem, crossing the Sea of Galilee, where he settles into a remote area where he is teaching. He is on a mountain and he's teaching these these crowds. It says 5,000 men, not including just the women and the children. And the fourth sign occurs when he feeds the 5,000. And this is taking place while the second Passover is in Jerusalem. So a year has passed. And he is in Jerusalem. He's not in Jerusalem. He's out feeding the 5,000. And then the fifth sign occurs as Jesus sends his disciples out into the Sea of Galilee to cross over to Capernaum. He, He doesn't go with them. And they see him walking on water. They see him calming the storm. And again... He arrives in Capernaum. And throughout this, throughout these chapters, whether it's at Cana or the healing of the nobleman's son or the woman at the well, more and more you see people believe in Christ. 
people are believing in him. It is a refrain that John uses again and again. And he arrives in Capernaum. The crowds again follow him. There is another long discourse about being the bread of life. He uses for the first time the I am statement. The I am statement, a statement where Moses is asking God, how will they listen to me when I go back to Egypt? And he said, and God says to Moses, tell them I am sent you. The name for God, the one name of authority that people would listen to and people would believe. And Jesus, in the course of talking about being the bread of life, he says, I am the bread of life. And again, the Pharisees, the Jews are incensed and they seek to kill him. Throughout these chapters with many who encounter Jesus, some become believers, some are curious, some are scoffers, and most are severe opponents. So severe that again, John continually reports they try to kill him. And now we arrive at John 7. And read with me as I read the first 31 verses as we read the Word of God. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Feast of Booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, Where is he? And there was muttering about, about him among the people. And while some said, He is a good man, others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. 
If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man who they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come from of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? As Jesus, in verse 1, goes about Galilee, he voids the Judean area, Jerusalem, because the Jews do want to kill him. He spends his time in Galilee. Now, this time is about a six-month period from when he gave his bread of life discourse. John doesn't fill in all the details, but Jesus is, is traveling around Galilee. He's ministering still. People are watching who he is and what he does. And they are, they are being introduced to the Savior. And in 7.2, there is this feast, this feast of the booths, which dominates uh, chapters 7 through 10. And we'll be studying that in the coming weeks. The Feast of Booths is a harvest festival, a time of great joy and celebration during this eight-day feast. All of Israel, like at the Passover, when, when the Jews would all travel to Jerusalem, the same would be for the Feast of Booths. They would all gather in Jerusalem and they would camp outside in booths or tabernacles made of, of sticks and, and palm branches. And it was a way of celebrating and reminding the people that they lived in tents in the wilderness. It was a time where they were remembering God's rescue from Egyptian slavery. It was a time when they would remember God's provision. And during the feast, two great themes, one of water and one of light, played a significant role in this celebration. The people looked back to the past. They would remember God's provision of water when Moses struck the rock and water flowed forth. And they would remember God's presence in a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. And it was also a time where they looked forward to the future, a future prophesied by Zechariah after the exile where God's redeemed people would celebrate a future great feast. Oh, a future great feast where God's ultimate kingdom is established. And prior to the final feast, prior to the six, this six months, this is six months before Jesus' last Passover, six months before Jesus will again make his way back to Jerusalem, six months before Jesus will be crucified. This is a time that his hour has not yet come, as he says. 
Now, where he says in verse 6, my time has not yet come, but your time is here. He is not talking about his death. He is talking about the time for him to go to Jerusalem. His brothers have ur- are urging him to go to Jerusalem. Now, they want him to go because they want him to increase his popularity. Their, their motive for wanting him to go to Jerusalem is not a godly motive. It is not a pure motive. He, they tell him, you know, leave here and go to Judea so your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. They want him. It's a carnival show to them. The signs and wonders that he is doing, they're not believers. John writes here, for not even his brothers believed in him. His brothers are not believers. They want him to go to Jerusalem simply to be a sideshow. There are going to be a lot of people in Jerusalem. And this would be a great place to make yourself known. And that's not how Jesus functions. They want to put him on display. Jerusalem is the place where Jesus will be ultimately put on display. Six months from this time. A time when he will be put on display as he is beaten and mocked and carries a cross to Calvary and is nailed to that cross and is on that cross suffering and dying. Oh yeah, he will be put on display. But now is not the time. His hour has not yet come. Because it is a time when this world is moving in that direction. And and Jesus alludes to that. My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. It hates me because I testify about it. I testify that its works are evil. It's not just the good things that Jesus is doing. It's a, it's that his life, his ministry, his words testify that what they are doing, how they are living, what they are believing is evil. It is that kind of opposition. It's the same opposition that you see Christians experiencing today when they stand for righteousness. And the world gnashes its teeth. The world hates Christianity. The world does not want to hear that their works are evil. They don't want God's authority in their lives. They don't want God's standards in their lives. They want to be the God of their own lives. And yet their works are evil. It's not God's time for Jesus' crucifixion. And Jesus, in going to Jerusalem, it's not that he's lying to his brothers about his time not yet come. He's just simply saying, I'm not going up to Jerusalem in your time. I'm going to Jerusalem when God wants me to go. I, I work on God's time, not on your time, not on man's time. I work on God's time. And so Jesus does go to Jerusalem. He does make his way up there because he's not now working on man's agenda. He's working on God's agenda. God will determine where he goes, when he goes. 
And so now it's time that he does go to Jerusalem. Not to be put on display, but quietly so he can do the works and speak the words that God has given him. The Jews are are looking for him at the feast. As we see in verse 11, where is he? Where is this Jesus? They were expecting him. Word, obviously, is, is out about who he is and the signs and wonders that he's doing. But again, they're not looking for the Savior. They're looking for a miracle worker. They're looking for a carnival sideshow. He's wonderfully not fearful of being killed because, as he says later on, he says, my hour has not yet come. He is obviously well in tune with God's agenda and God's timing. And he knows what's going to be happening six months from now. He knows that the next Passover is his last. And so he doesn't worry about the Jews wanting to kill him. And so he shows up in the temple and the people are marveling at his teaching. Verse 14 through 16. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. This is not a man who is afraid. He goes to the very place where the people who hate him most dwell. How is it this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. This is a great irony. When you read this and you see that they are looking at Jesus saying, where does he get this great teaching? How does he appear so learned? How does he know these things about God, about the scriptures? When the incarnate word is standing in front of them, when the word became flesh, is teaching them. They question his ability to teach them. They question how does he know? And they totally miss that he is the word become flesh. And as he speaks openly, he challenge, challenges the Jews' accusations against him in a, he, in a brilliant way. He turns their accusations around. Has not Moses, in verse 19, given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Do, do you understand what he's saying there? They, he has healed a man on the Sabbath. They still remember that. They're still incensed. Six months have gone by and they're still angry that he healed a man on the Sabbath. He has broken the Sabbath law. And so what is their response to breaking the Sabbath law? Let's kill him. Which is breaking the sixth commandment. They want to hold him accountable for breaking a law and they want to kill him. They don't get the irony and they don't get the hypocrisy of what they're doing. And then Jesus goes on to say, look, I did one work. One work and you marvel at it. Now, that word marvel isn't like, wow, it's, it's more of a anger and, and a, an incensed view of what he has done. He goes, Moses gave you circumcision and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. Now, here it is. There are, there are laws here that if when a child is born, you must circumcise him on the eighth day. Well, what happens when the eighth day falls on Sabbath? 
It's a work to circumcise. So which law do you hold to? Do you hold to the law that says you don't work on the Sabbath? Or do you hold to the law that says you circumcise on the eighth day? And Jesus is challenging him saying, listen, you break one law to fulfill another. And it's only to perfect one part of the body. And yet I make a man whole on the Sabbath and you want to kill me. This is the opposition that Jesus is facing. And the problem that everyone has with Jesus is simply it's the same. They don't really know who he is. And they don't believe what he says about himself. And what they do is they do all they can to explain away who he is and explain away the signs he performs that attest to his divinity. And they want him to fit into their understanding of who he is. They can't accept what he says. They're limited by their own blindness and their own humanity. Listen, the human mind is finite. And all attempts to corral God into our human boundaries are useless. We serve an infinite God. And as finite human beings, we cannot ever grasp the enormity of who God is. Even in heaven, I don't think we'll ever capture an understanding of all there is to know about God. How do you capture the eternal? How do you capture the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end? How do you capture a God who can throw our sins as far as the east is from the west? And these these Jews, these haters, they, they they want to domesticate Jesus. They want to capture him. And make him who they want him to be. And that leads us to our proposition this morning. There are many problems that come with wanting only to know who Jesus is. There are many problems that come with wanting only to know who Jesus is. But Many blessings to those who believe in him. Many blessings to those who believe in him. Two points. I'm going to do point one this morning and then point two next week. The first point is the problems that come with only wanting to know, with wanting to know only who he is. That's, there are problems because that's what the Jews want. They just want to know who is he. They don't want to believe in him. They just want to figure him out. They ask, it's actually, it's not a bad question to ask who he is. They always come up with the wrong answers. A company was making leaflets for a local church and the client wanted a logo designed with earth being shielded by the hand of God. I sent the client a proof and shortly thereafter I got a phone call from the client. The hand looks too human. Please use a hand that looks more like God's. (laughs) People just can't understand or figure out how, who this God is. Throughout John's gospel, and particularly in this account, 
one theme keeps popping up, and that is, who is Jesus? In John 1.14, He is the Word made flesh. In John 1.36, He is the Lamb of God. In John 3.13, He is the Son of Man. In John 3.16, He is God's only Son. In John 3.17, He's the Savior of the world. In John 3.18, He is the Son of God. In John 3.19, He is the Light of the world. In John 4.26, He is the Messiah. In John 5.22, He is the Judge of mankind. And in John 6.35, he is the bread of life. Oh, John has made it clear who Jesus is. These things are written that you may believe he is the Son of God, the Messiah. And that by believing you may have life in his name. Oh, John has made it clear who Jesus is. But only a few in John 7 truly see who Jesus is. Most cannot see past his heritage. They can't see past his humanity. They can't see past where he grew up. They can't see about the explanations that he gives about himself because they don't believe. And John records numerous comments and questions about Jesus and and the, the struggles that these the people are having believing who he is in verse 5 of, of chapter 7. For not even his brothers believed in him. His brothers think he's a carnival worker. He's all about signs and wonders. But they don't believe in him as the Son of God. In verse 12, the crowds are confused. The Jews are looking for him. And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he's leading people astray. Is he a good man? Is he a deceiver? They're just all in a frenzy trying to figure out who this guy is. The Jews in the temple are perplexed about him. In verse 15, how is it this man has learning when he has never studied? We know who rabbis are. But who is this guy that he can say the things that he says? Verse 20, many in the crowd think he's demon-possessed. The crowd answered, you have a demon. (laughs) The word became flesh. And he's a demon? Verse 25, they're not even sure if he's the one that the Jews want to kill. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? They just, who is this guy? Verse 26 through 28, they know his hometown. Can it be that the authorities really know this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. (laughs) He's a Nazarite. He's from Galilee. The Christ comes from Bethlehem. How how can this be? They're just more and more confused. And in verse 31... Yet many of the people believed him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this? Some are actually getting it. They're recognizing, wait a minute, the the signs that he's doing, who else is going to appear on the scene and do more than what he has already done? Here are the problems of those who don't believe. They hate him because they're of the world. They misjudge him and miss the blessing of salvation. They can't receive truth. They won't believe that he comes from God. And they're doing all they can to make him less than divine. 
The problems with wanting to know who Jesus is rather than believing in him is that the very thing they need the most, they cannot receive. They need salvation. They need to believe in him that they might find life in his name. And by not believing in them, he cannot be their savior. He's reduced to a human understanding of what they think about him. And for the unbeliever, this is a grave problem. It is an eternal problem. Is it a problem that leads one to hell? It's a problem that leads one to eternal death, to the judgment of Christ. This is a grave problem that only finds its answer in God. That Point one, who is Jesus? And not knowing who he is is a great problem. But as Christians, though, that's not our problem. How does this make any sense to us as Christians? How do we fast forward this passage into 21st century life as a believer? How does this fit? What meaning does this passage have for those of us who are Christians, who believe? Because we do believe in him. We do receive his truth. We do read these words and we know who he is and we know where he has come from. And we trust his words and we trust his truth. We know he is sent from God. We believe he is the word became flesh. We're no longer of the world, but we are in the world. How can a passage like this have application for my life and your life today? Well, next week, we're going to see the application of the blessings promised to those who believe. But this morning, I have just one point of application from this passage. Sometimes as Christians, we can struggle to have a limited view of God's sovereignty. As Christians, we can sometimes ourselves try to corral God into our borders, similar to what non-Christians do in this passage. We try to come up with all these things that we want God to be. We don't ask the question, who is he? That's typically not what we ask. But I can tell you at times in my own life, the question I ask is, where is he. Where is he? Oh, I can't tell you so many stories where I've just driving in the car, kind of yelling at God a little bit. You wouldn't want to be with me at that moment. (laughs) Just thinking, God, where are you? Where are you? You know, Jesus didn't come to Jerusalem when they expected him. They're all asking, where is he? How often does it feel like he doesn't come to you when you expect him? When you need him? You know, in verse 3, his brothers wanted Jesus to prove himself to them with more signs and wonders. And he wouldn't. Are there internal demands that you have that God would prove himself to you? 
Does he have to perform so you'll trust him? Does he have to perform for you so that you will believe in him? Does he have to perform for you so that you'll love him? Where do you believe God has let you down and not been where you needed him when you needed him? In verse 6, his brothers make an attempt to manage his schedule. You need to go to Jerusalem. You need to do this to make yourself known. They are rejecting God's sovereign wisdom and timing for Jesus' life. They are rejecting God's agenda for his life. We can do the same. We can argue with God. We can be plying God with comments that he hasn't shown up when he's supposed to. I should have had that baby by now. I should have been married by now. I should have been healed by now. I should have had that job by now. I should have had these needs met by now. How can your timing be perfect? All I've done is suffered and waited. That's what we can learn about who Jesus is in this passage. That he is the sovereign one whose timing is perfect. Who has always, always done what needed to be done when it needed to be done. John has written these things that we might believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that we would trust him as the one who loves us, as the one who suffered on a cross in our place, as the one who has received our wrath and punishment, that we would trust him as the one who was mocked and ridiculed and died for us and for our sins, as the one who has given us eternal life, as the one who treats us as his children, as the one who has shown us unfathomable mercy and grace, as the one who has never left us nor forsaken us, as the one who has never let his children go begging for bread, as the one who is the bread of life for us, as the one who is the shepherd who has promised to Lead us besides still waters as the shepherd who says we will never want, as the one who will make us lie down in green pastures. This is the Savior. This is who Jesus is. This is the Word made flesh. This is the creator of the universe. And John pleads with us in this passage as he recounts who Jesus is that we would believe in him and trust him. And that where God has not arrived on the scene when you have asked him to, that you can trust him and believe that his agenda and his timing and his wisdom and his love for you is perfect. There are times when God is saying to you, your time has not yet come. Wait patiently. 
wait patiently. God's agenda is the best. Your wisdom in determining what is the best time is faulty. Oh, many times I've thought, if I were God, this would have happened now. But God, thankfully, does things when it's best for us. Where is he? Oh, he's with you. He's with you. He's the word that became flesh. He's the God who never leaves you nor forsakes you. We're going to end here because we still have a whole other week to go through the other part of this chapter. Let's pray. Father, you are you are good and you are faithful you are the God that we have given our lives to and trust in because you have called us to be your own and so Lord we this morning where we have not trusted you Lord we, we do repent Lord where we have not patiently waited on you, we ask that you would help us to do so. Lord, help us to live in such a manner that our lives honor you because we trust you. Lord, I pray for those who have been waiting, those who have wondered where you are, that this morning you would Minister to them. Minister grace to them. Minister hope to them. Minister strength to them that they can continue waiting until you in your wise and perfect time do the thing that they need most. Oh Lord, I pray that you would bless your church this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen.